Our second scripture reading this evening comes from the Gospel according to Mark, beginning in chapter 13, with verses 1 through 8. Listen now for a word from the Lord. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When Jesus was sitting later on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, his disciples Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. They must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Tell you what, it might be getting dark outside and we're at the end of a weekend and we might start feeling our eyelids get a little heavy, but for me at least, the passage like that always sort of wakes me up a little bit. Because when I read this, the first thing I thought of was the person on the street corner that I'm sure many of us have run into before who has the Bible in one hand and the bullhorn in the other, And they're standing on a box and they're preaching about Jesus is about to come. And they're preaching on who's going to go to hell and who's going to go to heaven. Have you ever encountered someone that fits this description? Do you do the move? I'm guilty of this on more than one occasion. I'm doing the move where I kind of duck the head and rub the temple and casually jaywalk across the street to pass on the other side. So you can just imagine my unrestrained glee when I opened up the lectionary for this week, and I read this gospel text, which in true gospel fashion turns the tables a bit by putting Jesus on the box with the bullhorn and with the Bible, predicting mayhem and warning his disciples about impending destruction, turmoil, the end of times. I thought to myself, well, this seems like a great way to finish off the weekend at the five at first. What we're reading about tonight when we read this text is the apocalypse. It's a word maybe you've heard before. In its original language, it means the revealing of something hidden. And typically in religious terms, particularly in the Christian faith, the apocalypse is used to refer to the end times, to the eschaton, when Christ will return to earth. Now, although it might be a term you're familiar with, my guess is it doesn't turn up too often in your daily conversations with friends and co-workers. And if it does, it's probably not in the most serious of discussions. Because there's a lot of things that come to mind for me first when I hear, hear that word apocalypse. Among other things, I think of Martin Sheen in the movie Apocalypse Now. When I thought of Martin Sheen, I also thought of his son Charlie Sheen and the absolute apocalyptic implosion of his career last year. I think of Will Smith in the movie Independence Day when some laser-wielding aliens show up. 
ready to destroy the earth. And I'm not a regular viewer, but I suspect some in this room at least are Walking Dead fans. There's the zombie apocalypse and the Walking Dead series on the AMC channel. And when I reflected on the fact that those are the images that come to mind for me first when I hear that word apocalypse, it got me thinking, what does it say that those are the images we think of? Why do we feel that compulsive need to dart across the street to avoid the person on the box with the bullhorn? And what do we do when the person on that box is Jesus? Is there something more? Is there something that we are missing This past summer, I stood at the retaining wall of the temple that Jesus speaks of in this passage, that Jesus walks out of in this passage. And I brought a picture along tonight so you can see what it is I saw. And when you look at this picture, you might recognize that this is not any old retaining wall. This retaining wall is known today as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, a holy site in the city of Jerusalem, in modern-day Israel. And in Jesus' time, the giant stones that this wall created held up a flat piece of land that stands on top of where this wall is today. And it's a flat piece of land that today the Alaska Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, that gold dome you see often in pictures of the Jerusalem skyline, that is what is on it today. But in Jesus' time, there was a temple on top of this wall on the ground that it's holding back. And some of these large stones, you can see them compared to the people standing by them. They are indeed large stones. And some of the ones that you're looking at date back to that original temple time when Jesus walked and talked and did his ministry. So the temple was constructed by Herod, and it was a sight to behold. The historians of the period, Josephus and uh, Tacitus, I think I'm saying that right, Josephus, in particular, though, describes the temple as being a sprawling compound, as a compound made up of these giant stones of white marble that's adorned with gold, that has high towers and these large indoor spaces for worship. It was a sight to behold. It was the works for that period of time. It was truly an architectural and engineering marvel. But more than that, it was the centerpiece, the temple was, of worship for the Jewish people, for whom that sacred space represented, and as you can see by the people who come today still to pray, still represents the most sacred place for them. It is a spot that was seen as being close, closer than any point on earth between God and God's people. And people came to the temple to worship. If you look at maps of the period, you'll see that Jerusalem and the temple are portrayed as being at the center of the world. And so as Jesus is strolling out of this grand uh, compound, of this temple of magnificent proportions, the disciples exclaim, and rightfully so, I think, they say, look, Jesus, what big stones. How did they get these on top of each other? Look at this magnificent building. But much to their surprise, Jesus' reply is not one of agreement, but rather one of dire warning about the temple's forthcoming destruction. Now, to be sure, if you've read before in the Mark text, or if you've gone to church around Easter time, you'll remember that Jesus wasn't particularly enthusiastic about what was happening in the temple. When he comes into Jerusalem before the Passion, 
He goes to the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers. Maybe you're familiar with this story. And he drives out the vendors. But Jesus' stern reply here seems to be striking at something deeper. Jesus seems to be urging the disciples to an awareness of something bigger than the stones of the walls. Bigger than the peak of the building. The text seems to suggest that this man-made structure is impeding the view of the people. That in their awe of the stones in front of them, in their desire to know what the signs of the end times will be, they're missing the real picture. It seems to me that in 2012, this year in particular, has been an unusually big apocalypse year. So we have the Walking Dead series. We have other reality shows that are documenting people who live in the hills and who stockpile. Stephen reminded me that in a few months, the Mayan calendar apparently predicts the end of the world. And perhaps if you followed the news back in May, you heard of Howard Camping, a radio personality who says that through complex calculations, he determined that the world would end on May 21st. And Twinkies as well are going out. I mean, if that's not a sign of the apocalypse coming, I don't know what is. (laughs) There's a lot of talk about the apocalypse. And I don't mean to make light of of the people who are uh, especially enthusiastic about some of these signs. I don't mean to make disrespect of their beliefs. But in light of what Jesus is saying here, I think we miss the point. When we read an apocalyptic text like this one and get wrapped up in discerning the signs, and using our attention and energy to try to come up with some sort of calculation that only God knows. We miss the point when we make our view so narrow that we block out the bigger picture that God intends. To me, Jesus' message here seems to be less about the signs and more about the living. Notice how the disciples ask him to tell them the signs of the second coming. However, Jesus replies in this sort of indirect fashion. Instead of telling them what signs they should expect, he sets out for them a way to live. Did you hear it? He says, beware that no one leads you astray. Beware that no one leads you astray from the path of life to which you have been called. And that path that we are called to is the path of witnessing to the truth and to the promise of the Christian gospel that God is present, even in the midst of events like those that are unfolding now, only a few miles from that wall that I just showed you, from the wall I stood at back in May, and perhaps others in this room have stood at too. God is in the midst, even in the events of warfare, of bombs and rockets in Israel and Palestine. Even in the midst of natural disasters like the one we saw only weeks ago when Sandy plowed through the Northeast and left damage that will take years to rebuild from. Even in the midst of joblessness, of death, of poverty, of despair. A professor of mine and Stephen and Chris's at Columbia Seminary, Roger Nishioka, wrote about this passage. Roger writes, Our focus must not be on the signs themselves, but rather on the one who is coming. The one who enables us to look up after such devastation and claim the certainty of blessing. Things may seem to have fallen apart. It may appear that anarchy has been loose on the world. Nevertheless, the center will hold. And much to our amazement, 
we will discover that we have much faithful work to do. I love that line that he writes in there. Our focus must be on the one who is to come, to trust that the center will hold. Trusting that way is oftentimes easier said than done, I think, though. Like the disciples gazing up at the temple, we sometimes struggle to see around both the figurative and the literal walls that we build in our lives. We are guilty of building walls that are meant to block others off or even to enclose others in. Oftentimes, we wrap our identities up in the things we build. We wrap our identities up in the homes we live in. We wrap our identities up in the jobs we have. We wrap our identities up in the buildings that we worship in. But when we do that, when we spend more time gazing up in wonder like the disciples at those buildings that we have created, that we wrap our identities up into, we miss the view. We block our view of the real picture that God intends for us. The picture that witnesses to the certainty of God's blessing. I want to close with a story that I experienced the day after I stood at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. Because the next day I stood at another wall. But this one is in the West Bank city of Bethlehem. And this wall is not made of individual stones, but it's a 20-foot tall, 28-foot tall solid cement wall. It's a separation wall that separates the Palestinians from the Israelis. And it's become a symbol of sorts for the complicated and painful relationship between those two groups. But what better image of a literal wall we have built that blocks our view? Because as we visited the West Bank side of this wall, I saw something remarkable. For several hundred yards up the road that this wall followed that leads up to a refugee camp. There are these beautifully painted murals, one after another after another, right on the wall. And each mural depicts one of the hometowns of the refugee families, one of the hometowns that they left for some over 60 years ago. And some of these murals are so realistic that it gives you the impression that you are looking straight through the wall and down onto a rocky Palestinian hillside where there's a village of low buildings and tents. These Palestinian communities have chosen a way to live that is based on an understanding that no matter how many walls exist around them, they do not constitute the real picture. The real picture for them is based on the trust that despite so much time behind these walls, God's blessings are still in their midst. That God has not forgotten about them. That one day, God will deliver them through the hole created by those murals and back into the lives they left behind. Friends, for me, this is what an apocalyptic text like the one here in Mark is all about. What Jesus is shouting from his box with the bullhorn is not meant to scare us into action. It is meant to challenge the walls we build by reminding us that one day, like everything else, they will crumble. And so Jesus invites us to remove some of those stones now, to paint murals that give us and others windows to step through, 
to do faithful work here and now in the certain knowledge that when Christ returns to make all things new, the center will hold. And trusting that out of the birth pangs of creation, of this creation, new life is springing. So what stones need to be taken out of the walls of your life? What murals need to be painted on the walls of our world? What bigger view is God calling us as individuals and as communities to take in on the other side? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.